is Swampside Chats. A podcast where, every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down to discuss two essays by Theodore Kaczynski, perhaps better known as the Unabomber, The first essay is titled, The Truth About Primitive Life, A Critique of Anarcho-Primitivism, and the second is called, The System's Neatest Trick. Basically, lately, you know, following the news and looking at like people's reaction to all of like the increasingly like heinous shit that's going on, and I'm really just getting this increasing sense. I've always kind of felt this into. I felt this for a long time intellectually, but really like in a deep personal sense that the United States is an evil place. <laughs> and no, I mean, and I mean, not to say that like. What makes you the, say that, Jake? Not to say that all the people here are evil, but just like, you know, what needs to be happening versus what is happening is just so disparate, and the political realm is just so poisoned and rendered yes. completely fallow by, you know, just the entire machine designed to keep this going. You know, I guess. And part of it, I think there was a con- some comments that Noam Chomsky made recently where he said, I think I found it hard to refute this because I'm always like, well, the Republicans, the capitalist party, they're just part of the system, blah, blah, blah. But he basically said that the Republican Party is quite likely the most dangerous human organization in all of history because there is this potentially ecological ending phenomenon that's happening and they're doing everything in their power to an almost suicidal degree to prevent any change or anything mitigation or fixing it right they're they're just accelerating it to the nth degree and in a a trajectory that is possibly suicidal for human civilization so with this in mind it put me in a really good mindset to read Teddy Kaczynski. Yeah. Yeah. Even like my dad was saying the same stuff. Like it was just like, you know, why aren't people riding on mass right now? Why aren't like people coming for the heads of, you know, <laughs> these, these uh, people in charge, you know, well done. Dad. It's because the left serves as the front lines for a defensive technological civilization. Well, that's what Ted K says. 
and far out. Defending the system, man. Society. <laughs> what? You're trying to fight racism? You're just part of the system, man. That's just helping the system run totally clean, you know, man. We but, live uh, in a society. We live in a society. <laughs> anyway, so... Uh, I, reg- I regret to inform you we live in a society. That's Ted Kaczynski. Yes, so we read Ted Kaczynski for today's episode. Um, yeah, we, we read The Truth About Primitive Life, a critique of anarcho-primitivism. Um, we read The System's Neatest Trick, a short uh, essay summarizing his view on the left that isn't quite as frothing as his comments on the left in industrial society in its future. And we read a little thing that I found on Twitter that I'm calling Letter to a Young Revolutionary. Uh, that's, yeah. that's just a, uh, a correspondence to someone who wrote in to Ted. And this is from the uh, Technological Slavery Collection put out by Feral House, which is the, uh, you know, the first two. My, one, of, one of my favorite uh, publishing houses ever because they'll put out anything that's shocking and offensive, far right, far left, and... I don't know. They, were, they kind of were at the vanguard of edgelord culture in the 90s. And their uh, owner, Adam Parfy, died recently, which is, you know, we are actually kind of had some respect for him, even if he was probably a horrible person, just because he was willing to put out crazy stuff like this. I wonder yeah. if we could get Teddy on the phone in prison. It's probably a possibility. We, I know you can get Mumia. Yeah. I oh, mean, wow. Really? I There okay. was someone who um had phone calls of charles manson and yeah. posted them on tumblr Jeez, yeah so yeah i mean I maybe, maybe, that could be, maybe that could be a bonus feature for our patreon subscribers <laughs> <laughs> live chat with ted kaczynski um uncle ted i well you see people give us money on the internet and then they can hear a special special interview you know like we don't tell them that we <laughs> Yeah. It's a prank call. Uncle Uncle Ted, I tried cleaning my room. I tried <laughs> I tried PUA. I tried reading the 12 rules for life, but I, girls still won't talk to me. What should I do? Uncle Ted's advice fucking mm. makes Jordan Peterson look like a punk. Like honestly, like you can't get anything from Jordan Peterson that you can't get better from Ted Kaczynski. I'm saying that <laughs> oh, right now. I'll say this, I think Ted Kaczynski is actually hella smart. I mean, that was already known cuz like um he was a like a mathematician and a physicist before. Yeah. 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 So no, he's obviously shit, a smart the shit guy. That Teddy Kaczynski wrote in that shack is more lucid, coherent, and convincing than anything Jordan Peterson has ever written ever. It's a yeah. more scathing critique of the left and it's a more radical critique of society. Oh yeah. And it's also just more lucid. Like there's just not a bunch of like weird shit about like dragons and chaotic feminism for feminine or femme or whatever. You know, feminine. There's nothing about like lobsters and how you know evolu- there's no evolutionary biology bullshit. He actually actually he goes against a lot of that stuff, actually. Yeah, he's just citing anthropologists and kind of um against the, the anthropologists themselves though, which is funny. Because yeah. he'll be like, yeah, this anthropologist, you know, they pointed out this thing, but they couldn't, because of their leftist political correct, you know, viewpoint, they weren't able to, you know, actually, you know, realize the true implications of this. We also took a little look at uh, industrial civilization and its discontents. Uh, um, industrial society and its future. And its future. Yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah. Bit of a Freudian <laughs> slut there. <laughs> the parallel is apt, actually. Yeah. 
I read the section of his stuff on the left, where he, it, or also the beginning part where he just says that you know the industrial revolution, revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race, which you know Marxists would disagree with. Yeah. Yo. Yeah. Definitely. But, I, yeah. He seems but, to have a Marxist background. I would kind of say. Well, well I mean, if he I was think... at all around the left, like the radical left, you're going to encounter like some form of Marxism, even if it's fairly bastardized. And yeah, I, he and. I think in industrial society in his future, he very clearly, in language that is very close to, I mean, I think he does say superstructure at some at some point there. And he, he says we need specifically not a political revolution and specifically an economic and technological revolution, which is identical to the deep Marxist definition of revolution, the historical materialist way of treating politics like the superstructure and trying to attack and reconfigure the economic base. Like, it's... it's it's the same idea. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Marx does say that it, you know we need a we need a political revolution, but it has to be a, a, a political revolution with a social soul. I think is how he phrases it. But well, um, especially because he's dealing with like eight, you know, he saw eighteen forty eight go up and down, and there are all these bourgeois that were interested in reforming politics, but did not want to touch the social question. Uh, exactly. So Marx was very interested in how do you touch the social question. How do you and, even get beyond all this political stuff and just focus on the social question? And uh, Ted Kaczynski, he's uh, I, I didn't read the part where he talks about what his view of revolution actually is, but I imagine it's probably not far off from what the end notes people probably argue for, to be honest. Yeah, one, one of the criticisms that was frequently leveled at end notes in um and notes three in particular before jasper burns's essay on logistics in which he's kind of open to delinking what kaczynski would think of as like a broader kind of networked technology um that you know he's he's making a primo argument but we could refine it to like an anti-civilization argument because kaczynski is clearly not a primo in any like simple sense um but yeah like i think i think it's with all due respect, Jasper Burns, it's perfectly clear that there is a resemblance between this vision of revolution and that, and that Endnotes is writing for an American, or at least Anglophone, post-left kind of milieu where this is an implicit influence. Kaczynski is Uncle Ted for a reason. He was influential. must be the elimination of modern technology and that no other goal can compete with this one. Sincerely, the Unabomber. I think it's too wordy. I thought they caught the Unabomber. Oh, please, that bearded freak. Like I live in the middle of the woods where there's no discos around. So you're the real Unabomber? Well, awesome. The truth about primitive life? Yes, I thought this was fascinating. Because he really does just push completely against the whole noble savage myth in the most ruthless way possible, you know. What's amazing about Kaczynski is for someone that is against progress and against civilization, he truly hates myth and is Mm -hmm. interested in the search for truth in a way that I don't think, I really don't think of like people that are against civilization in that 
like usually think this way. Usually, well, yeah, people like, are are more romantic and a lot less instrumentally rational. Right? Like hey, you did you know the animals don't have war? Who's the real <laughs> animal? Yeah, like you see, um, what was I gonna say? Um, you see these anarcho-primitivist like idealized visions of like the post-civilization future, and if you, it's just this idea like oh everyone's just going to live in their little hut and you know eat like and be hunter gatherers and just like spend all day picking berries and making love and Ted Kaczynski's like no like these people you know pre-civilization you know you still had he makes the point that you didn't have class exploitation per se because people weren't technically able to develop enough surplus but you still had hierarchies and oppression in these societies yeah i thought the point about eskimos was actually really interesting Um, well basically in this essay he does one thing he basically goes point by point against kind of commonplace um anarcho-primitivist assertions and just goes about primitive human civilization and just goes no it's not right so they go uh primitive civilization had you know perfect gender equality no they didn't uh, primitive civilization uh, didn't have war. Yes, they did. Uh, primitive civilization, uh, there was only worked four hours a day. No, they didn't. Yeah, they worked 15 hours a day, actually. Uh, <laughs> well, you wouldn't call it civilization, but yes, point two. Well, yeah, sorry. Well, edit in me saying something intelligent later. Um, Humanity. Uh, my point is like it's a very skeptical piece Uh, he's not actually saying that he knows what primitive society was like although he does kind of have like a few of his own kind of hunches that he puts forward as basically being correct without proving it either but for the most part he does basically say like there isn't really a basis for a lot of these assertions and we just don't really know yeah he makes a point in um, the fourth section that there's just an epistemic limit and this is something that like Foucault is interested in as well. The whole thing about archives is related to this. It's so I don't, I don't know if he was aware of that or not, but it's like, you know, I mean, he probably was because he was just an intelligent, well-rounded person, probably well-rounded in an intellectual sense and probably no other sense. Um, <laughs> I know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and, and this, is, this is a problem you run into in anthropology and particularly when I, we know when I'm reading Marxist anthropology, this sort of Engelsian tradition with the optimistic sort of view that, you know, human nature is sort of mate is matriarchal and then with property it becomes patriarchal. Like it's a, it's a myth that, that we, you know, kind of work with in order to preserve the idea that there could be that, that not only that, you know, primitive life was communism in the broader sense, not just in the strict sense of there not being like class exploitation, but in the broader sense of there not being, you know, sex roles and that kind of thing. Like, it's totally not true. <laughs> like, well, yeah, the example of the Eskimos, the Eskimos that had visitors, the male patriarch would, you know, rent out his wife basically to sleep with the guests, and they didn't have a choice whether they liked it or not. So basically you have, it's this weird thing where it's like, it's not, you know, the strict hetero monogamous thing, but still it's essentially women being treated as property. It's just shared property. It's just bizarre, but... Well, well I mean, that happens yeah. in hetero monogamous society, too. I mean, but it's just, well, well, it's not the, that direct. The well, it's, it's like, you know, you have swinger culture or whatever, but this was literally... Well, just like, guys cheating on their wives. The important thing is the commonality here. And this is what I think is, you know, when people are like, you know, there's no essence to patriarchy like there is in you know with capital and i just think that's weird argument to make because the essence is 
in every human society, you know, men do or try to control women's bodies and autonomy. Like, and that's, I mean, it's pretty, what I gather, gather from it is like every like hunter gatherer society is sort of like diff, like there are vast differences between like hunter gatherer societies and like ultimately to make these like broad sweeping generalizations about how egalitarian they were or whatever just doesn't really work because yeah well yeah so and it's usually ideologically motivated like there's like a group of i can't remember the name of like the people but they're in like china that's like a matriarchal setup and there's like a few examples of matriarchal societies that are relatively primitive compared to our own and that sort of thing It's, it's just it exists essentially but like it's exaggerated by like left-leaning anthropologists the extent in which like gender equality third gender sort of situations and that kind of thing exists within primitive societies yeah this is something that we've kind of touched on before and also no i mean we're just sort of using the lingo that uh that uh kaczynski is using so he he uses primitive certainly not in a in a derogatory way in fact he Kind, he basically looks to these societies as for political guidance. <laughs> yeah, he's like describing how bad these societies are, but at the same time, he says, "Well, you know, it's still better than technology in the industrial revolution." Yeah, you know, yeah, even got, though yeah. it was awful, man. it's still better. All day, man. No, no, that's in the manifesto, basically, and and he even quotes Mao at some point saying, "Revolution is not a tea party," like uh, in one of the later like revolutionary writings, like. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's saying that there's there's there would be a tremendous sacrifice, but that we would we would actually see like a, a greater elaboration of this point in industrial society in his future. He says, yes, there would still be you know abusive women and you know abnormal sexual expression. God forbid, you know these things would still happen. Um, but, but racism, it, for example, right? But yeah. they would but they would be minimized in you know, what he's calling primitive society, um, which th- that's his argument. Um, which so wait, does, does, does Kaczynski actually advocate for a return to like, does he actually advocate for like a return to some kind of nomadic existence? It's hard to say what he advocates. Um, because you could, because from what I've read, at least a lot of it seems kind of vague in terms of what this like techno industrial revolution could be. Like it's so vague, it could almost be the other way, you know. And just it could almost just be communism, you know. At least in the context of the pieces that I've read. Right. Yeah. I, I um I picked these pieces kind of for that reason. Um, and I think when you read industrial society's future, and that's that's the piece that really kind of gets into this. Mm-hmm. Um. Ah, fuck, I lost my train of thought. It's all good. Um, you're probably stressed out from existing within techno-industrial civilization, and it's... Oh, it's, God, it's, it's it's me started. There's no doubt that I am, and I'm coming down from Adderall. <laughs> yeah, I've been um, experiencing the misery of rural life in, here in uh, Illinois, so I don't know. I don't think... I think I kind of like techno-industrial anxiety. <laughs> yeah. There are, there, are, there are a bunch of trees out there, man. Trees are like antidepressants, dude. You should be feeling good. <laughs> Yeah. There's cornfields, and I don't, I don't, I don't feel know. the common nature. 
It's not a fat I mean, line of pollen. Go straight to your SSRI system, whatever. SSRI. Um, I mean, <laughs> there, maybe so it's because guess, you're not in real nature. Um, no, wild yeah, no, nature. You're fine. There's kind of one card he actually doesn't deploy here, which is, you know, even if the anarcho primitives were right, you know, you're not going to be able to have that kind of lifestyle in an irradiated wasteland. Oh, yeah. Well, so like if civilization collapsed, you're going to have like all this like all right. nuclear material and nuclear waste and probably conflicts that happen as civilization collapses. So that stuff's going to be all over the place. Also, you know, there's going to be a lot of uh, chemicals like in the water. Oh, you know what? That's what I was. So, this is what I was going to say before. Is that um, Kaczynski's vision of revolution is that he just thinks there's an epistemic limit to what kind of society you can make. So all that really makes sense is to attack the enemy, attack what you know to be the cause of the problem, um, and because so it's kind of insurrecto. Well, revolution and this does draw on history that revolutionaries don't have a lot of control so, like over the society that they end up building like they kind of do in this dialectical fucking whatever way where they have like some important limited causal agency but there's a lot of things outside their control well yeah. they end up building something that is not of their design really and you totally see that in the russian revolution where you see oh, you know God. you have Lenin's ideal of, you know, what the Soviet Republic will be like in Satan Revolution. And the then French you have, Revolution. Then you have what actually Haitian happened. Revolution. You know, totally different. And yeah, and yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a problem. It's a real problem with revolution. Is I mean, that it's just, yeah. but I guess that's kind of the point of Marx's theory of revolution is that, you know, it's not a matter of will, but if this is just, you know, communism is kind of just the logical outcome of capitalist development if we steer it in the right way i guess well no but that's the the thing about steering and the the whole marxist tradition is that is it's kind of making an argument that communism in particular has to be a conscious act it, it can't be like those other revolutions where you just bumble something out well, yeah it's, it's humanity developing conscious control over their own reproduction as a species it, it just seems at odds with a lot of his intuitions more generally though that that is something that's a tension in marx that marx seems to also share this view of Kaczynski where, uh, you know, you don't really know what you're doing in history. There's the cunning of history from Hegel. Like, yeah. Central part of like communism is like the need for like control over man's history and that sort of, it becomes more concentrated in like, in terms of like economic planning and that sort of thing. It's about humanity gaining control of its own destiny, I guess eventually down the line as mm -hmm. much as the historical observation points out yeah. that, like we we haven't had that much control it's interesting to think about like the jacobins and that sort of thing not really intending to create capitalism but like unintentionally leading to it in like sort of an offhand way and that's really how it happened but I think um, kind of the appeal of technology to Marx was that it gave humanity an ability to control its destiny. And so I thought of what Marx's real theory is, is basically how do we actually achieve the true potential of technology? Because under capitalism, technology is this chaotic force, you know, that's behind the backs of the producer, you know, distributed according to the law of value and operating in this anarchic way. 
And so for Marx, it's a question of how do we take all of this and put it actually under human control? Whereas Ted Kaczynski is just saying, no, you're not going to ever do that. This is hopeless. We just need to attack technology itself and see where that goes. That's an interesting point, okay, because Marx is making a Hegelian point, right? That we have this alienated from us, developed beyond our wildest imaginations, and then we can reappropriate it. And wow, this is even better than if it was never stolen at all. If we find ourselves attacking the Hegelian aspects of Marx, then it does sort of follow that we might have to attack or attack or, or reconsider this kind of optimism there. It isn't necessarily the case. There's no guarantee. There's I'll no be guarantee. honest, the more I read Helena Sheehan, the more I just think that Marx needs to be de-Hegelized completely. And we just should, just, I don't know, just give up on Hegel. And- well, in that case, then... Kaczynski's line of argument, to a degree, makes some sense that actually probably a lot of these productive forces are are things that maybe shouldn't exist, and some of them are pretty dope, and maybe we should keep those. Like, you know, that's... Well, that's the reconfiguration thesis, right? Yeah. That, you know, that not everything that's created by capitalism is so tainted by capitalism that it can't be reconfigured for communism. Yeah, Whereas this, the, uh, this, this debate is, is really usually done in black and white terms. And um, the one thing that I'll say for EndNotes and Jasper Burns is that they're definitely coming from a place of, look, we, we're not going to say if we're you know, full in this direction or not, but we think it, you know, we should open the, open the door to critiquing technology in this way and uh, have discussions about, you know, should certain technologies exist? The, the the crazy thing about those discussions is from libertarian Marxists or post-Marxists or whatever the fuck, like how you expect to enforce there not being certain kinds of technology. Yes, that is, I mean, you would basically need, you know, a centrally planned global economy. Yeah, but, but, but that's the thing. They're kind of arguing for, you know, some kind of decentralized like cooperation. Yeah, that's just it's it doesn't This is my problem with that kind of like idea of decentralized planning, quote unquote, is like all right, say you have like all these autonomous communes that are, you know, basically as self sufficient as possible. How are they going to provide for resources that they can't all grow locally without having either a central planning instrument or the market? I don't see an alternative to central planning that's not the market in some kind or just some kind of like weird barter system that's incredibly inefficient you know and i don't see central planning working without cybernetics to be honest yeah i tend to think that central planning was probably impossible when it was tried like yeah like because i i think i think i've mentioned this in the podcast before but just my image of someone at a desk trying to add all the radishes and the whole soviet union being like god damn it where do i put all these radishes oh, well, the, the alternative <laughs> that, that kind of council communists and syndicalists argue for is oh we should just have workers councils and everyone will democratically decide this stuff that's just more unwieldy if you think about it that's well, if it, if it's kind of like like I don't know like uh, choosing what you're gonna get in your subscription package on your smartphone, like it's a little more manageable to think about. Oh yeah, I mean if you look at for example like Amazon, for example, that's an infrastructure that I think could be reconfigured for central planning that would allow for yeah a degree of democratic input while still you know maintaining efficiency and not having this huge unwieldy 
federalist kind of a uh, system where we all have to negotiate production quotas with each other and yeah i'm I'm full hegel for amazon prime i really think that's reconfigurable but hey you know i'm domesticated well there's actually a book uh coming out called people's republic of walmart that kind of argues that modern yeah. large-scale corporations have basically created a technology for centralized planning yeah, I'm, I'm basically on that thesis. It's funny, too, because um, my uncle, I was talking to him last night, and he works in a car factory, and we just had a long, long discussion about logistics and how insanely powerful the technology is getting. And it's, you know, it's crazy. You kind of have these self-correcting systems that they use in the factories Machine where every thing. little error is basically processed and then reconfigured and... I don't really know how it works, but it was just really interesting to hear him talk about it. The cutting edge of data science is called machine learning. It's yeah, pretty, machine pretty learning. Awesome. Yeah, he was talking about how they use machine learning in the car factories and stuff. Yeah, so I'm trying to trying to do that. Love of God. Anyway, um, I feel like we should attack this text like a bit more systematically. Just maybe go section by section, break down what he's saying because it's he, he makes he's a pretty clear writer. He writes like an analytical Marxist. It's, it's a little disturbing. Well, I definitely learned a lot about nuts. I learned about, about <laughs> yeah. uh, picking berries and tanning totally, into your skin. He totally well, flexes nuts and berries about how like primo he is. You know? Well, he like, starts out basically saying that progress is a myth. And usually when you hear someone say progress is a myth, it's coming from a kind of reactionary traditionalist perspective. And they kind of have this mythic like idea of the past. Homo kind too, where it's like yeah. progress is a myth and I'm, you know, like Red Foucault and, you know, Said and shit. And, but then he doesn't say we create a new myth and like kind of like a Sorelian myth instead. He's just basically no, he, saying that. He attacks that to, myth. Yeah, exactly. He's just attacking myth and kind of look, he's looking at it like a scientist almost, which is because he was a scientist. And that's, I think, what makes him so interesting. Yeah, yeah, primitivism is this Edenic myth that is replacing the myth of progress. Yeah, and he says the myth of progress may not be dead, but it is dying. And I think that's true if you look at the rise of postmodernism and the way that it's, you know, the quote, whoever said it, that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism or whatever. Um, so the, the second section I have labeled work sucks, I know, um, which... <laughs> Well, he talks about uh, Marshall Sollins, who is often quoted by primitivists as um, kind of like uh, the, the real proof that, you know, primitivism is the way to go and everything was great back in the day. And people, it was original affluent society with a 15 hour work week and everyone was happy and stuff and had enough to eat. And he's basically going and he talks about Bob Black, too, as another example of um, someone who... Um, spouts this stuff and he basically says that you know if you actually look at the real evidence this is all just nonsense they're just kind of selectively picking from evidence in order to um meet their theses yeah. and he says well you know it's it's true that you know some aspects of these societies were better than our current society but i'm not focusing on that because that's already been discussed i'm here to tell you what was bad because that's ignored and it's it's interesting because he kind of has a whole critique of the field of, of anthropology in a way, mm -hmm. and the idea of cultural relativism and this idea that, you know, we can't critique oppressive forms of society in other cultures because of our own, you know, uh, our own 
I don't know about that. I think I think he's sympathetic to cultural relativism, but he's doing an imminent critique of these academics that these academics are imposing their Western leftist values. They're not actually like allowing those cultures to speak. They're imposing their values on them. I think there's a sense in which he is sympathetic to the cultural relativism because even when he's defending his own intuitions that, you know, I happen to think women should be equal because I'm a product of industrial civilization, (laughs) you know, like even when he does state his own opinion, but he's still, he's still willing to criticize or don't, I mean, I don't even know if to criticize, but he's willing to point out that yes, this is a part of his society and it's oppressive. Whereas there's kind of this tendency in anthropology to where, Oh, well, you know, in our Western lens, you know, we can't call this oppressive because that's forcing our own viewpoint on this. We have to be, as Ted Kaczynski says, politically correct. He always going on against political correctness. I, I wonder to what degree he latches onto this as a strategy, because if you read Industrial Society in its future, it's a sandwich. There's basically his whole historical materialist critique of tech and outline for revolution in the middle, sandwiched between like high concept Fox News, <laughs> like foaming mouth hatred of the left, it sounds like. It's almost like it was tailor-made for 90s America, you know? Yeah, it's like, this is the truth that the politically correct left doesn't want you to know about primitive society. <laughs> it, it even has a reference to Arnold Schwarzenegger. It does. It's, it's in his section on uh, black walnuts. He's talking about, like, the anarcho-primitivist characterization of, you know, how people got food. It's like the Indians used to collect huge piles of them. If you found a few good trees in October, you could gather enough nuts in an hour or less to feed yourself for a whole day. Sounds great, doesn't it? Yes, it does sound great. If you've never tried to crack a black walnut, maybe Arnold Schwarzenegger could crack a black walnut with an ordinary nutcracker if the nutcracker didn't break first, but a person of average physique couldn't do it. You have to whack the nut with a hammer, and then the inside of the nut is divided up by partitions that are thick and hard as the outer shell. So you have to break the nut into several fragments and then tediously pick out the bits of meat. This process is time-consuming. In order to get enough food for a day, you might have to spend most of the day just cracking nuts and picking out the bits of meat. Wild White, he goes on. And then he talks about the indigenous solution to boil the mixture so that the, the shells go to the bottom, which I thought was pretty cool. I feel like Teddy could have had like a reality show. Oh, man. He could have done Anthony yeah, Bourdain Uncle, before Anthony Bourdain. Uncle Ted's Cabin. And, like, like every week, you know, he goes up to the wild and he talks about, you know, like, anarchal primitives say that... That makes me so berries. So I'm going to show you how to pick berries and what goes into it. Step one, you know. Bear grills, what more, actually? I don't think I'm going to call him Uncle Ted anymore. <laughs> so, Teddy K... <laughs> I mean, the guy was a murderer. I mean, he was propaganda of the deed, comrade. I mean, I, th- I think we've talked about a lot of people that have killed people. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I don't want to minimize his crimes at all because you know he just like killed civilians. You know, I mean, they're they are like you know, see tech CEOs. I'm honestly, a lot of our audience probably had would have no problem with like slitting their throats, watching them die. Honestly, like, yeah, but it's just like I but kind of come I, from I, a family of scientists. I, and so it really I do. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I have a I have a problem with it. Like, I I, I don't. I don't think we should do that. I don't yeah. think we should send letter bombs to the CEO of Oracle. Like, I don't think that's the best thing to do. I really don't. Actually, um, funny, because we mentioned Noam Chomsky, or I think Noam Chomsky was supposed to be one of his targets, actually. No fucking way. That's what I heard, at least. I might be wrong. I might have to fact check that. Well, 
Well, old gnome isn't dumb enough to open packages from some weirdo he doesn't know. Oh, he's got a Polish last name? Never mind. Anyway, <laughs> just kidding. Um, I should have said it in his voice. I don't know if you could do an impression of Chuck. I mean, it'd just be talking really quietly. I can't even do an impression of Picard, so don't look at me for impressions. Okay, so there's one more thing I wanted to point out about Kaczynski. That, you know, he lived in Berkeley, which is why he overstates how leftist society is. Um, he went to Harvard. As a sophomore, he was in a Harvard psychological experiment. Yes, this is why I actually wanted to talk about a little bit. There's a kind of conspiracy theories surrounding this whole thing because a lot Basically, of people think that... they bullied him really hard. Like, yeah, really hard. To reading from Wikipedia, they they asked them to write essays detailing their personal beliefs and aspirations. They were turned over to an anonymous attorney, who in a later session would confront and belittle the subject, making vehement, sweeping, and personally abusive attacks using the content of the essays as ammunition. While electrodes monitored the subject for psychological results. These encounters were filmed, and subject expression of rage were later played back to them repeatedly. Yeah. It lasted three years. Someone verbally abusing and humiliating Kaczynski each week. In total, Kaczynski spent 200 hours as part of the study. So this is on Wikipedia from the Washington Post, A Dangerous Mind, apparently, is the source of that. What do you get for participating in a study like that? Why would you subject yourself to that in the first place? That's my question. um, I have no idea, but there does appear to be some kind of conspiracy theory about this, Kaczynski's lawyers later attributed his hostility towards mind control techniques, his participation in this study. Some sources have suggested, some sources, <laughs> Murray's experiments were part of the CIA's research into mind control, known yeah, as MK, MK Ultra. MK Ultra. Woo! And I yeah. think, um, I, you know, I don't, I, it's funny because you could, yeah, if, um, because he's able to write from prison and send his stuff out, but all his stuff gets censored. So if they really, if he really did want to reveal the whole truth of what happened, you know, uh, they would probably censor it anyway. So we really don't know the full, you know, story behind Ted Kaczynski, I guess, and what extent that this um, experimentation on him really drove him insane. I, I, in a way, like, when you read about what he went through, it's almost like you don't want to blame him as a person for his crimes, but rather the people who psychologically fucked him up for his crimes. I mean, yes, and, you know. At the same time, you know, he has personal agency, but it's obvious yeah. that his, his brain was just manipulated by these assholes. I don't, I don't know. like In the name of science. He, he writes very clearly and just, like, like, yeah, there's definitely alienation going on, but that's the motivation for a lot of people. And it just, like, he's he's coming from a really rational place. I don't think you can just, like, dismiss him as, oh, he's mentally ill, and that's, like, Oh, no. It. Oh, that wasn't, that wasn't my point. My point is that he has a real life. I know, but the temptation is there. Yeah. Yeah, and he's obviously a very who... rational person, and I was surprised by how um, articulate his writing was, but uh, it's still, it's, it's, it's like all this, you know, the Unabomber came from something. There was a real like historical social experience that created this person. Yeah. I mean, is it, is it possible he was like basically acting as like a rational actor based off his political principles? He's doing propaganda of the deed. Yeah. He's an anarchist more or less. Yeah. Oh, well, if you read some about the anarchist terrorists from uh, like the early yeah these the anarchists in the invented, late nineteenth century, they, they did the same kind uh, of shit. They would kill innocents and civilians and with like letter bombs and stuff. 
Like his tactics really weren't that much different from like the classic anarcho individual terrorists, basically. So yes, he's very much acting as a rational actor. I mean, he picked his targets very deliberately. He has a whole essay, which aside from the frothing at the left, is very well considered and rational. And even his frothing is in the form of an argument. <laughs> yeah, this is this guy's a rational actor. It's just you know. <laughs> This is where radical politics can take you, folks. <laughs> yeah, it's it can take you to scary. Like, look at the uh, TASA people. Uh, you have oh, the whole um, yeah, yeah, that's, ITS that's right. uh, individuals tending towards uh, whatever. What's it called? Is savagery? savagery. Yeah. Well, you know what? I, that whole tradition looks at primitivism the same way accelerationists look at Nick Land. They're like, look, if you're really going to do this, you got to drop the left shit, like because it's not compatible with our vision. So I think yeah, just forget about all the humanist equality bullshit and just yeah, embrace know. the the wild, brutal nature. Yeah, he's basically saying that nature is a brutal, awful, wild place. And I mean, well, but isn't that just simply another a historical ideological vision? Uh, have you ever been in the woods? It's hot. No, I mean, you know, everywhere <laughs> like. Yeah, there's they fucking infer, wild they swamp ass chat. They merely invert like the vision to make these native peoples more edgy than they actually were. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me to what degree like they do it. It's just like oh yeah, they were primitive savages and they didn't care about your political correctness <laughs> and they scalp people and, sh- and it's just like it, well, yeah, that's just the mirror version a bunch of, those guys of white who have, like Punisher skulls on their of, pickup trucks. Yeah, you're and we're, a bunch like shirts of white, with, like American eagles. You know, you know. I don't. Are, I don't care about your fucking feelings. white incels in Mexico. <laughs> fucking like get their jollies off by like thinking about murdering random teenagers or fucking college girls. They're honestly the most pathetic kind of primo out there. Like even the hippy dippy fuck sticks are like more like Zerzan. Just. Yeah, Zerzin, even though they have, like, the same motive. It's the same with the accelerationists, the really dopey ones that don't understand, like, the problem with these two concepts together are the nicer ones, the ones you'd actually kind of like, because they have similar values, even if they're not, you know, I'm accelerationist-leaning, but I think there's a problem there. That's why I find this stuff compelling at all. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, like, I think where I sympathize with accelerationism is kind of the idea of reclaiming modernity and technology and having a kind of futuristic vision rather than this kind of folk political, as Cernet calls it, view of um, this idealized past that we kind of want to return to. And in a way, that's kind of the same point Kaczynski is making that there is no idealized Garden of Eden to return to. Yeah, but. More or less, like Kaczynski advocates direct action against the technological system b- because he knows what I think we all know in the, in the same maybe bad faith way that Kaczynski is criticizing leftists for that you know the system's pretty much unstoppable as is like there's no significant challenge to it it's learned to incorporate all of its challenges and 
the only thing that could burn it out is something exogenous to it, it seems like, more or less. Like something outside of it. Well, like, I mean, I think the problem is he totalizes the system in the wrong way because he completely ignores how, like, the particular logic of capitalism itself, like, shapes the trajectory of things. Like, he seems to almost view society as, like, this giant m- machine, and mm-hmm. everything is a result of the operations of the machine. He's explicitly, like, functionalist. Yeah. So, like, for, like the thing, like, the system's neatest trick, right? That's the other piece we read. Right. Right. Let's begin by making clear what the system and it capitalizes system. <laughs> Let's make it clear what the system is not. The system is not George W. Bush and his advisors and appointees. Man. It is not the cops who maltreat protesters. It Man. is not the CEOs of the multinational corporations. And it is not the Frankensteins in their laboratories who culturally tinker with the genes of living things. I think he's talking about like GMOs there. Yeah. All these people are servants of the system, but in themselves, they do not constitute the system. Um, and he just basically goes on and on and it's like an intro to structuralism. Yeah. And uh, like, he basically goes like whatever illegal acts may be committed by politicians, cops or CEOs as individuals, theft, bribery and graft are not part of the system, but diseases of the system. I think there's something here. So as Marxists, right. When we're criticizing capitalism, we're not criticizing corruption in capitalism. We're criticizing the just the inherent logical tendency right the execution of capitalism when it executes well when it's doing yeah fine, like that's not when the it's point corrupted of, the point of das kapital is basically the ideal capitalist system with no corruption no um rent seeking even just the ideal capitalism that you know classical liberals argue for and says even if we have that it will still tend towards crisis and you know Right. Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, corruption is endemic to the system at two levels. In a sense, the system is corruption, but like petty, low-level corruption does act as kind of a lubricant that keeps things functioning. I mean, like it yeah, is- I, I do think that, the, especially when he gets into the way like racism and sexism, these kinds of things, that there's a bit of a problem with his argument. And Adolf Reed actually makes a similar argument <laughs> that um smoothing out these hysterical leftists, you know, like milquetoast version of anti-racist politics, that it's purely good for the system, right? Yeah, and I don't really buy that, even though... I think there's I, a lot of utility in divide and imperium and divide and conquer. Exactly. Uh, and Mc, it's a point that McNair makes, is that you have to be able to have some system of domination to actually have a class society. So you do need like different forms of oppression that aren't limited simply to class exploitation. Well, stratification helps you prevent proletarian revolution. Like It's just period. Like, well, and it's not just that, but it allows you to structure a labor market in a way where you can have different hierarchies of divisions of labor in a way. For example, you know, yeah. We have oppressed um, immigrants who don't have citizen status. That means that we have a labor force that we can use for, um, you know, these undesirable agricultural jobs. And so it's like these forms of oppression aren't integral to capitalism and its functioning, but they're still very useful. And even if they weren't integral to capitalism, they're still bad and we still want to abolish them because it's domination and the oppression. So yeah. Teddy is nice enough to summarize um, the system's neatest trick into uh, five points. I'm just going to read through them really quick. Um, so, in a nutshell, the system's neatest trick is this. A. For the sake of its own efficiency and security, the system needs to bring about deep and radical social changes to match the changed conditions resulting from technological progress. B. The frustration of life under the circumstances imposed by the system leads to rebellious impulses. C. 
Rebellious impulses are co-opted by the system in the service of the social changes it requires. Activists, quote-unquote, rebel against the old and outmoded values that are of no longer of use to the system and in favor of the new values that the system needs us to accept. D. In this way, rebellious impulses, which otherwise might have been dangerous to the system, are given an outlet that is not only harmless to the system, but useful to it. And E. Much of the public resentment resulting from the imposition of social changes is drawn away from the system and its institutions and is directed instead at the radicals who spearhead the social changes. And uh, that's a pretty, you know, I mean, swap some words around. I think that's a pretty fair characterization of kind of what happens. Yeah, Yeah, well, it's it's kind of like the Society of the Spectacle theses. In the abstract, that stuff is all on point. When you zoom in, he makes some problematic claims. But yeah. like in the abstract, like like the relationship between like activist NGOs and the Democratic Party is practically almost exactly like this. I've actually had like a conversation with like a person before that basically went along these lines and lamenting it, lamenting how like radicals would like be tricked by these activist NGOs into doing the dirty work of the Democratic Party. And, like, he he obviously put, makes this a more widespread thing and puts it on society, confusing, like, the Democratic Party with industrial civilization, I guess. Yeah, a working class yeah. friend of mine calls that the puppy mill. Well, it's funny yeah. because he says... Yeah, fighting for women's rights and equality, all you're doing is helping the system run more smoothly. But, you know, I actually think women should be equal, and I'm not, you know, sexist or anything. But if you fight against sexism, you're basically just helping, you know, integrate the system and make it run more fluidly. So well, uh, it's, he, it's, uh, he, he, he makes some comments that definitely, like, that mitigate that point somewhat. First of all, he clearly has respect for radicals that... Uh, are advocating destabilizing ideas and and so the example he uses is radical feminism and and he documents in a pretty it seems to me to be a sympathetic way how the ire of society for the greater social change is taken out on the radicals like and you know and that there was there's a socially acceptable change that needs to be made to society so the radicals demand truly destabilizing change and then the society uh, ends up making a moderate change that makes the society work better and then a generation later you have a bunch of hysterical leftists marching around in a circle that are just kind of cheerleading the values of the society as is like but in hyperdrive without reaching those heights of radicality that he seems to respect. Yeah, this is which is basically a lot, of, a lot of stuff like Zizek says, basically. Well, it's yeah. very, it's, we see this playing out in the whole anti Trump movement, you know, when we have people defending true. the monarchy, you know, because, oh no, Trump was rude to the monarch, you know, we have to, that's so bad. But so it's, it's, it's like this, it's this weird way of people end up defending the basic ideas of you know the liberal establishment in the name of fighting the establishment like for the 90s teddy k is wrong he lived in berkeley and then moved to like montana to get the fuck away from things so you know he doesn't can't really speak with authority about how american society was the way he treats that uh, intersex case totally cuts against his point 
because it's completely believable to me that people could, have retrograde ideas. Could you explain what he's talking about there? He like describes like this like professor that talked about her experiences as a young intersect person being taken by her parents to see like pastors and being told that she was cursed by a demon and that sort of thing and that she needed to be cured by like each pastor pray the balls away yeah pray the intersects away and like yeah i think most people even at the time would consider that fucking stupid but at the same time you know intersex people weren't actually accepted during the 90s he's overestimating how progressive society was towards intersex people at the time like he was projecting from berkeley there was a vocal intersex movement in the 90s so he was probably like oh god i mean doesn't everyone know this you were you were more likely to have a tv show about talking dinosaurs or puppets than you were an intersex person in the 90s. Yeah. Well, it had, the point that he makes about this case of the intersex person being you know, harassed by religious people is that basically these religious people are these backwards yokels who are actually behind society's progress. And really, they're actually more against the system than the people who support their rights in a but way. that was amidst, like, the rising tide of, like, evangelical, like, Christian conservatism. Yeah, like, and I think... That was a whole, yeah. like, mass culture within the yeah. culture. And that's where I yeah. think his argument doesn't make sense, is that there actually is this mass... Yeah, exactly, like you said, there's this mass evangelical Christian Bible-thumping part of this American society that was very much embedded in the neoconservative establishment. Yeah, so that's it's certainly not true at the time that he's writing. That and, and you know what? I think intersex is, is a particularly bad example for him because even now I would still find that very believable and that people still have retrograde views of intersex people, even among mainstream LGBT stuff and queer stuff. I, I would still find it believable that people are still bad at that because it's, you know... So just read the comment section of any article about yeah. trans people and you are reminded, oh, wait, you know, people have very backwards views about these things. And Yeah, that's true, but pretty much any comment section anywhere. Yeah, but the, the, the main point, though, for me is that uh, this is a little more true now. Like, right. it's ahead of his time. Yeah, but let's say that's really the problem. Maybe you know he's like well, the joke. Let's say you know he's not bad. He's just ahead of the curve. <laughs> well, well, let's let's say that this is you know the defending the rights of trans people is completely compatible with the system. So what? It's it's still a democratic right, and it's still a part of our basic egalitarian ideology. Even if it's not abolishing capitalism, it's still something that is you know progressive and overall. The Marxist position is, you know, that capitalism does have progressive tendencies and that there can be progressive things that happen that aren't pure communism, unlike, you know, the decadence theorists would say. Well, considering the importance that gender and sex have had in, you know, dividing workers' movements or, like, just getting in between social solidarity, you know, like... um, I don't see, (laughs) I don't see like how it's entirely functional that people start switching genders and, you know, like flipping stuff around and being gender ambiguous or whatever. I don't see how that's entirely functional. I see how it can sort of mirror a sort of logic of consumer choice or something. I see how it could be utilitarian. I can, I can see all kinds of like capitalists. Well, I think it's, um, yeah, there's, there's way to make money off it. But you can make yeah. money off of most anything. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, God, Paul Cockshot posted this god-awful article about how, oh, look at all these people making money off of trans people. So that yeah. must, that's, that's, this is proof that it's, you know, capitalist decadence. <laughs> he doesn't even feel that way about China. Look at all the people making money off of the goods coming yeah, out of China. It's, 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 it's just ridiculous. Like, you can huh. make the exact same argument about homosexuality. You can make the exact same argument about anything. He probably really. would. He probably would. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, anyway, sorry, yeah. Um, we've taken we've taken like a long detour. I do want to go back to the sections in primitive life because it's um it's a great essay. So, uh, what section do you want to look at now? I just wanted to say one more thing from the work sucks I know section, <laughs> which is um, I wish I could take certain anarcho primitivists out in the mountains, show them where the edible roots grow, and invite them to get their dinner by digging for it. By the time they had enough yampa roots or kambas bulbs for a halfway square meal. Their blistered hands would disabuse them of any idea that primitives didn't have to work for a living. That kind of actually reminds me of the end of a Tom Clancy novel. <laughs> what? So I haven't read the novel, but I think I read the last part of it because the description <laughs> of it looked looked interesting. Basically, Rainbow Six is about like primitivist terrorists, right? <laughs> no fucking. Oh yeah, way. because so- Tom Clancy had an obsession with environmentalists that goes yeah. throughout all his novels. <laughs> So at That's the end, awesome. at, at the end, like commander, sergeant, whatever, like he he beats him, and so he basically he, his punishment is oh they love nature so much so he strips them all naked and leaves them in the Amazon. <laughs> like there you go, you love nature so much. Why don't you uh, marry it? it? And then and then basically just flies off and is like yeah they won't last a week or whatever. <laughs> That's ridiculous, <laughs> but it's funny because you have it's like all awesome. these. You have all these, you know, petty bourgeois hipsters who are like, oh, I just want to live on a farm and, you know, get away from all. But then it's just like, have you ever actually, like, lived yeah. in rural life? Do you actually know the reality of this? It's just all this pure, it's, yeah. it's just it's pure idealism. It's, have, it's a utopian have, tradition. And it's, have, yeah. yeah, it predates socialism. I have, I have relatives too. who are farmers. And let me assure you, they are some of the dull, the dullest people to talk to, the most, like, resentful and petty like individuals like just basically they spend their entire lives like brooding on grievances because their brother inherited more of their dad's farmland to work than they did even though they worked harder like yeah you do not want that's not what you want that's not the you know i mean and i remember during occupy too that was the thing as well there was like this farm like upstate basically that people like went like the hippie farm whatever like dude we're going to the farm like fuck babylon and so they just went to the farm and just sat around, like smoking weed all day while three people tried to do all the work. Uh, the whole thing failed. Praxis. Yeah, yeah I think um, what I heard about it basically was that um, it was just a bunch of people doing bars and drinking and while well, they tried to grow vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, so basically it was like Occupy, but on a farm. Comrade Zanny Bar. <laughs> I just want to make it like an overarching point about like primitism as a whole like even though like ted kaczynski is able to distance himself somewhat from like what we would call anarcho-primitism like obviously he's more of an eco-extremist there is something that they both fundamentally share outside of like primitism which is like i was which which is like essentially like the environmental stuff is really a secondary like if like he likes to do this thing where he's like psychoanalyzing like the leftists and all that 
you know, it's like resentment-based politics and that sort of thing. That's more like prevalent in the uh, the manifest the manifesto than like and, in you like know, the reading we had. He really but, is uniquely qualified to do that because you know Teddy Kaczynski, he was a people person. He got people. All of this is motivated by a politics of alienation and resentment. Like the environmental stuff is ultimately secondary when you look at like all these people in terms of like what they want to do. Like it doesn't care if they actually win their war on civilization because it's satisfying to kill people randomly and shit like that. Yeah. It, well, it's, I think it's, it's, it's satisfying because they hate, they just are alienated to that point. Zerzin, like the stuff about language and like hunter gatherers having like fantastic lives unalienated from from each other is like has nothing to do with environmentalism and like anarcho-primitism has no plan in terms of how to get to that point anyways well i think and they they see the environmental he, question as like a do sex machina almost that will bring about their desired society because you know it's because of global warming civilization is going to collapse and then the population is going to be thinned down and then a few people are going to now be able to live in like this primitivist world or whatever yeah, without alienation. There's finally. no way it's going to happen. And like, even with Ted, Ted being the most realistic of them all, it's, it's still there. It's a politics of alienation because what's motivating these awful leftists for him is alienation. And his concern is like, yeah, it's a legitimate concern. It's the only legitimate concern. And for him, it's a shame that these rebellious tendencies that come out of the alienation created by industrial society is like funneled into these victimization politics and all this useless crap. And that's why primitism is like, ironically enough, it's it's too anthropocentric. Anthropocentric? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Anthrop- it, it's weirdly humanist, actually. He is very concerned with how this affects humanity. You can trace it back to, like, Lukács and, like... Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I was about to say. Yeah, and Marx. Reification. This whole idea that there's all these abstract mediations that are keeping us from being in tune with our true human self. And so we just need to abolish all these mediations. And, you know, the Frankfurt School then takes that a little step further and says it's the whole problem of this instrumental reason... And then Zerzen takes that a step forward and says, we need to even abolish like, language. Cause that's hey, man. <laughs> hey, man, we got to abolish language. Well, and if you really take this kind of um, complete rejection of abstraction and mediation to its fullest degree, that's kind of the conclusion you have to come to. That, you know, we need to return to this, you know, but, Garden of Eden where we're telepathic and don't even have to, like, abstract <laughs> with language anymore. That's one of my favorite parts. It, it, you know, it should be noted that Zerzon believes that our uh, ancestors communicated telepathically. He says something, it's a paraphrase, he says something to that effect just as an aside while discussing his conversation with Zerzon that Zerzon didn't let him publish. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's funny. He's like, yeah, Zerzon, uh, I wrote to him and uh, he wrote back, but he won't let me publish what he said because, you know, Zerzon is just. He's just, yeah, he's a fucking hippie. He seems like such a dope. You, you know what, though? He seems like a, a gentle, nice guy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you could be a gentle, nice person and have, like, ridiculous, like, 
I mean, maybe maybe he really hasn't thought through the. Maybe he's so stupid he hasn't thought through the implications of his own politics. You but. know what? You know what I'm thinking of is that he's probably nice enough and chill enough to come on the show. And so, for shit talking him, he'll never come on the show. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't listen to technology. He doesn't. He doesn't know a podcast. No, he has a podcast. No, he has a he has a radio show. Yeah, it's he does really actually nice. do a podcast. It's like Art Cabrera used to talk about, like going on there to fuck with him. <laughs> <laughs> So I, so I kind of feel for him, and maybe you know, it's Ixnay on the on the Urzan. We got to get that hot scoop. So yeah, we got to get that telepathy stupid. scoop. Feral House, the people who published uh, this Ted Kaczynski collection, they also have a really great collection called Apocalypse Culture, which is um basically just like small excerpts of really like, edgy, crazy stuff that people wrote, like. And um, one of the articles in there is actually a Zerzin's case against art, where he you know, argues that art is bad and needs to be abolished because it's... Okay. Um, I can get with that. It's kind of like a situationist kind of critique, actually. And you can see kind of where you could take the situationist and uh, Frankfurt School kind of critique of reification and come to these really just insane conclusions. <laughs> Yeah. And it kind of goes back to the, the Zeno feminist manifesto that we read where it says that really the problem isn't alienation and mediation. It's making these things work for humans more. And so this whole attempt to escape abstraction and mediation is kind of pointless and silly. Kaczynski has a, a breakdown between these like kind of more localized technologies, which he's actually seems kind of in favor of. He doesn't seem to have a problem with those, but it's these like big, more networked forms of technology that, you know, encompass, you know, millions of people yeah. that he feels like creates this kind of society and these anxious symptoms and, and yeah. he wants to destroy. It's so he actually makes a point that, um, this huge, complex technological society that people act like capitalism is it promotes this idea of self sufficiency and individualism. And, you know, but really, this advanced technological civilization requires massive amounts of cooperation. And really, cooperation is the basis of this society, not this kind of um, live and let live individualism that, you know, libertarians argue is at the heart of capitalism. Yeah, and that's a really yeah. good point too, because usually he contrasts that with like the way that primitive societies are characterized as being all based on oh they're so cooperative, you know, it's almost communistic. But he points out that there was a relationship of reciprocity there, and a sort of like paying into like the social unit as a whole, as a portion of survival and also of social obligation. And even in primitive societies, you did have like you know. The early man equivalent of you know cheating on your taxes, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Also, he talks about like how individualistic like warfare was for like certain Native American tribes. I I can't remember which <laughs> yeah. specific. Like yeah, it was the part basically on warfare was interesting. Yeah. yeah. The, the the claim was that you know there was basically no sides and that war was essentially Hobbesian, that it was more or less all against all and you would if you had a whim or inkling like you know defend someone or decide they're your friend or if they're your friend before you would might defend them, but you know anything was possible in battle. They I feel made, like they made it I seem like, like it was I a bit chaotic. Like war back then was probably. The closest thing you'd see to it in like a modern context would be like bar fights. Yeah, I feel like there was a Mosh lot pit. of like, "Oh, you said, what, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? Huh?" You know, and I like, like to think of it in terms of like Fallout. Like there would be like <laughs> raiders 
just roaming around looking for fights. <laughs> I yeah. mean, honestly, every time I walk into a bar, I look around and see, all right, who in here can beat the shit out of me, and who can I take, and who, so, so I, it's just, I don't know. What kind of bars are you hanging out at? <laughs> I mean, I don't really go to bars that shit. often for that exact reason. I don't know. It's just, mm. I don't know. I just, damn. Uh, maybe it's a pessimistic view of humanity at the heart of my... You might but, say that. But, but you know, you know, Donald. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know where you've been. Maybe you're not wrong. So I don't know if I'm just reading politically correct anthropology from the last 20 years. But I, I would actually push back on this individualism section a bit because I'm sure the, um, I'm sure that those testimonies are like accurate and that you know that there are places where it's like that. But I, I think it's fairly clear using some basic rational choice theory or basic intuition what how far a little planning would go in mowing down like your enemy if they act like that yeah you know what i mean and so i think there's a body of literature and in particular my favorite one is bowles and gintis so these two analytical marxists that kind of lost the faith and tried to do a sort of immortal science of like a game theory (laughs) basically they have an anthropology book and they like focus a lot on cooperation and develop cooperation without dispensing with how selfish people can be. And it's probably too mathematically rigorous, honestly, but it's like pretty interesting set of ideas. It, I think there's a Ted Kaczynski quote in there, this kind of view of humanity generalized that is a bit outdated that even if you're not being a politically correct anthropologist, there's just good like strategic reasons, like game well, theory reasons, okay, like instrumentally so, rational reasons why you'd want to cooperate more. <laughs> well, I think, um, for example, you have Kropotkin who kind of makes this point that evolution actually is, you know, selects for cooperation rather than competition. And really we're naturally cooperative rather than competitive. But then you have the social Darwinists who say, actually, no, we're naturally competitive. And, you know, it's a war of all against all. But really, it's both, you know, and it's really a matter of how society channels these cooperative and, you know, individualistic, you know, impulses that we have, I think. I have respect for Kropotkin, but I have to say mutual aid is sort of just a bunch of anecdotes about, like, things getting along chill in nature, which I guess in the same way that this essay is just doing counterexamples to these supposed general laws in that way. It is an effective thing. For what Kropotkin wants to prove, I think you do have to take the extra step and combat the the Darwinian stuff more head-on like this. Yeah. Well, I think that Kropotkin makes the same mistake that, you know, anarcho-primitivists make. Yeah, he's sort of like the earth form of that. Well, what he does is he looks at how things are in nature and then says that's how things should be for humans. And he doesn't understand that there's a break. Here's the parts. Yeah, exactly. And he only focuses on the good parts, which is, you know, what Ted's railing against and all of these anthropologists is they only focus on the good parts and the bad parts. They just, you know, say, oh, well, we can't say this is bad because of our, you know, Western uh, centric viewpoint. So really, uh, you know, it's all good. In the end. Yeah. But beyond political correctness, I think there is room to push back on on this view of individualism. Although the comments that he makes, as usual, about the how how cooperation driven our society is and how we don't see it that way because of the breakdown in small scale association um is very perceptive 
because now we are cooperating at these mass abstract scales, but we all feel alone and we're also atomized and our, our families are falling apart. Uh, it's a very strange situation. Like there, we're cooperating on scales unheard of, unimagined, except in the wildest dreams of science fiction. But we all feel totally like rootless in a way. Well, I think the, uh, the reason it is like that is because this cooperation happens through the impersonal forces of the market. Yeah. Which and apparently it's atomizing and stuff. Well, and these sort of abstract phenomena that if you're, if you have more of like a communizer Frankfurt school sort of way of looking at things, you would say it's this bourgeois logic that is demonstrated by something like all the capitalist technologies and networkings that networking things that we have. I think Facebook is the ultimate example of the capitalist telos built into the platform, right? <laughs> um, if you have a more accelerationist point of view, you would hope that there's some way to reconfigure that kind of thing to not be so intrinsically bourgeois logically or intrinsically capitalist, whatever. Like if there, there's a section in industrial society where it's like, you basically can't have one without the other. And that's, that's his, you know, he has, he has a whole section on that. Uh, we'll get to that at some other point. Um, no one has a response to that. I just want, yeah, I just want to summarize the other se sections. He makes this counterexample argument about gender equality, about labor, there would be uh, violence, individualism and competition, that relations with animals were peaceable. Um, then yeah, that's he has the most a, laughable one, in my opinion. Yeah, that one's actually very short. <laughs> just kind of like, uh, are you kidding me? <laughs> well, I and mean, it was, it was, it was just a fucking song of the South, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just in, it's intuitive. Like you, you know, if you have hunter gatherer societies, they're hunters. So yeah, they're hunter, going to be very violent yeah, towards yeah. animals because their survival depends on it. <laughs> like it's yeah. just yeah. yeah. This whole idea of this harmony with nature is just nonsense that we kind of project on the people because of this noble savage ideal. I like I, I like this comment about the tiger truce. Where he's like, although there is a Kadar. There are the Kadar, which have a, a truce with the tigers, apparently. So, I mean, he, t he seems to take that claim seriously. How can you call truce with tigers? That's dope. I mean, it I just reminds me of this crazy anarcho pamphlet I was reading once where it's about all the animals rebelling against humanity. And <laughs> instead of like the proletariat as a subject of the revolution, it's the, the animals are in the subject of the revolution and the enemy is humanity and abolition of species, man. Yeah, it's abolition yeah, it of the like human species is the revolution and the animals are like the, uh, sounds like some furry heroes. shit. <laughs> <laughs> furry revolution now. Yeah. So yeah, someone, someone watched Zootopia and took it way too seriously. Panda um, Mao, if like him, was, were there were there any other um, thoughts on uh, on old Teddy K? C can we can we discuss the letter to a young revolutionary? Um, sure, I didn't actually read that. Well, I, did I. It's it's very short. I can summarize it. So basically, like this high schooler wrote to like Teddy K in like prison, and Ted starts off by insulting the kid's writing. He's like, your handwriting is subpar, and I can tell you don't have enough <laughs> discipline. So what you need to do is you need to start working out, like, you know, just start running. What else you need to do is, like, whittle down on how much technology that you use. 
once you gain this like self-discipline, you'll start to become like a better revolutionary. Once you have that discipline, Clean your room, bucko. you can stop. You can stop white power bill from taking your brownies at lunch. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> he's in prison. Right. Oh God. Oh, poor Ted. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, they're I, 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 I all just like, oh, poor Ted, you know. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. It's I know. that made him do all that stuff, you know. Actually, yeah. he's not that bad. He's actually uh, really smart. You know? Yeah, he was totally <laughs> deprived of agency, and and you know, there's nothing problematic about sympathizing with him. Um, so many gems here. Basically, he says, look, yeah, cut it down to one hour a day. This will not only be good training and self-discipline; it will reduce the damage you suffer from overexposure to electronic media. I mean, that's good advice, though. Yeah, that, that one's good advice. You, you know, a little exercise doesn't hurt, you know? Turn off the oh, screen yeah. for a while, you know? It's not a bad thing. Self-discipline yeah. is probably the first and most important quality of good leadership. In particular, one must learn to control the expressions of one's emotions. The ability to remain calm and self-possessed under all circumstances wins respect. See Anti-Tech Revolution, page 173. This it sounds like Rudyard Kipling, but okay. I mean, he's right, though. I mean, you have to be self-disciplined and in control of your emotions. And, you know, these are all good things to be, you know, it's good to be in shape. It's good to be, you know, know. that's that's the one masculine element of Picard, really, is that he tries to, like, hide his emotions. He tries to repress the shit out of his emotions. And that never goes wrong for him in that series. This is not about revenge. Liar! This is about saving the future of humanity. Jean-Luc, blow up the damn ship! No! No! Well, it's not so much that you have to repress your emotions so much as you have to learn to express them in a non-destructive way, I guess. That's how I would put it, I guess. Yeah, there's there's something to be said for keeping your composure so that you can operate and continue to help out. But I mean, you can't expect everyone to rise to that in the given conditions that we're in in our society. And I think that's what he's really objecting to is he thinks that the dependence that we're all subject to the system is pathetic and degrading. And, you know, he doesn't think people should live this way. Sort of something that Takun's like young girl kind of thing is getting at. It has a vaguely like misogynist edge, like more so in, in Takun's case, where like, you know, it's making us so soft and feminine. And, you know, in a way, if you're a militant revolutionary, you know, hard muscular militant materialist, you know, like there's, there is a, kind of underlying like gender discourse there that you know if you're soft and pliable and manipulable you know you're you're not like a revolutionary you read about these uh russian women who were um you know either in the bolsheviks or in the rodniks and they were fucking hard like (laughs) it's it's true but it is like in this writing it's a whole thing about tight butthole militancy he's really advocating his good old-fashioned be a strong like you know dependable man kind of discipline <laughs> like yeah. i just don't you know think what? that being I, disciplined is necessarily a masculine trait i think society and gender relations have kind of made it that way but i don't think it has to be that way well, I, I don't think, i don't think know, anything is inherently like that you know but yeah like and and, I, and that's not even to say that it's like a bad thing to do Women tend to be more disciplined than men off in the media. Yeah. And even in real life, like, that's why usually car insurance is more expensive for, like, boys over girls. Yeah, it wasn't the discipline I was talking about. It was don't express your emotions. 
I mean, yeah, that's definitely an unhealthy part of male socialization. You know, don't express your emotions. Unless but it's I think, anger. That's cool, though. That just means you're cool. <laughs> Anything else means you're gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anything else is a bourgeois perversion. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's something to be said about keeping your composure when you do express your emotions and not flipping out and acting irrational and doing things that you're going to regret later. Is that it for Teddy K? Do you have any more like life advice or words of wisdom? Uh, don't buy Jordan Peterson's book. Yeah, just, Honestly, just say no. Yeah, to, to that kind of Jungian myth making. And uh, if if you're if you love Black Mirror, don't chicken out. If if you feel so profound while you're watching some middle brow like HBO show, then you should check out the solution to all your problems. There is one thing I I want to wrap this up with. Um, it's an article. It came out on Medium. It got republished on CNBC. Uh, it's written by Douglas Rushkoff. It was published on July 9th. It's called uh, Survival of the Richest. The oh, yeah, I read Bloody this. Book. So I'm just going to read a few selections. I just want to get uh, the panel's reaction. Uh, I feel like it kind of ties into what we read today. Um, last year, I got invited to a super deluxe private resort to deliver a keynote speech to what I assumed would be 100 or so investment bankers. It was by far the largest fee I'd ever been offered for a talk, about half my annual professor's salary, all to deliver some insight on the subject of the future of technology. And it goes on. After I arrived, I was ushered into what I thought was the green room. But instead of being wired with a microphone or taken to a stage, I just sat there with a plain round table as my audience was brought to me. Five super wealthy guys, yes, all men, from the upper echelon of the hedge fund world. After a bit of small talk, I realized that they had no interest in the information I'd prepared about the future of technology. They had all come with questions of their own. They started out innocuously enough. Ethereum or Bitcoin? Is quantum computing a real thing? Slowly but surely, however, they edged into their real topics of concern. Which region will be less impacted by the coming climate crisis? New Zealand or Alaska? Is Google really building Ray Kurzweil a home for his brain? And will his consciousness live through the transition, or will it die and be reborn as a whole new one? Finally, the CEO of a brokerage house explained that he'd nearly completed building his own underground bunker system and asked, how do I maintain my authority over my security force after the event? The event? The event. And he goes, that was their euphemism for the environmental collapse, social unrest, nuclear explosion, unstoppable virus, or Mr. Robot hack that takes everything down. Oh, man, I should have been on the Badoo episode. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. we don't have an idea of a better future. Rather, we just have this, you know, idea of how do we manage the disaster in, you know, the least uh, harmful way. It's it's no longer about making the world better. It's just about how can we like minimize the uh, the impending catastrophe, and or at least like how can we us rich people at least like make it out, you know. Yeah, the single question occupied us for the rest of the hour. They knew armed guards would be required to protect their compounds from the angry mobs. But how would they pay the guards once money was worthless? What would stop the guards from choosing their own leader? The billionaires considered using special combination locks on the food supply that only they knew, or making guards wear disciplinary collars of some kind in return for their survival, or maybe building robots to serve as guards and workers if that technology could be developed in time. <laughs> So, I don't know. This is pretty grim. <laughs> like, if this is what, like, the wealthiest, you know, job creators that exist on the market, like, if this is what, if this is what they're, like, planning for long-term retirement, uh, that's not, that's not a good look. The future is Ted Kaczynski versus Nick Land. Yeah. Oh, God, that is horrifying, horrifying <laughs> prospect. 
And he goes, that's when it hit me. At least as far as these gentlemen were concerned, this was a talk about the future of technology. Taking their cue from Elon Musk colonizing Mars, Peter Thiel reversing the aging process, or Sam Altman and Ray Kurzweil uploading their minds into supercomputers, they were preparing for a digital future that had a whole lot less to do with making the world a better place than it did with transcending the human condition altogether and insulating themselves from the very real and present danger of climate change, rising sea levels, mass migrations, global pandemic, nativist panic, and resource depletion. For them, the future of technology was really about one thing, escape. And uh, he then goes on to sort of trace, you know, kind of how this developed culturally. Um, but I just, I think it's interesting how we seem to have reached a point where the capitalist class has really internalizing that crisis is actually endemic to the system. And they're trying to basically mitigate how that blows back on themselves or literally find a way to profit from it. Well, no, the thing about this right now is that the questions that they're asking are not like business cycle or even just like falling rate of profit stuff. It's like final crisis stuff. Yeah. It's like like hard edge, real crank ass, like, like final, total breakdown. Final crisis theory, which I guess you know Ted is is you know one of the biggest heads in. Like he, he does outline a, a few trajectories for civilization and the the future of technological society in in his essay of the same name that we'll have to save for the bogus journey. I mean, this this kind of stuff, though, or when you hear about, like, for instance, like, real estate people, like, negotiating with international banks to buy up stuff after the next, like, real estate bubble pops, right? Like, it that's what just makes it, like, so much more disgusting to hear, like, all this constant, like, pro-system propaganda that you hear trumpeted everywhere. You know, job creators, mm. this and that. When it's obvious that the people at, like, the upper levels of it do- no, all of that is complete and utter horse shit. And just and all that is just basically like spoon fed to rubes who will continue to vote for people who are fully cognizant that they're basically destroying everything. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. They're completely aware of that, you know, things are just going to a bad place. After World War II, the capitalist class did kind of have this idea that oh you know we're building a better future we're going to develop all these countries and have a equitable capitalism with a welfare state and you know you have soviet bureaucracy which also kind of has this idea of, of progress but the whole ideology of progress has just broken down completely and it's just doom yeah this is darker than any fucking adam curtis documentary i could possibly yeah. imagine yeah, and I kind of knew about this. Like, I knew someone who was an architect who was building, like, this house in the mountains for this rich couple, which would be totally self-sufficient and impossible to break into because it was obvious that they were planning to escape after, you know, the crisis or whatever. Zombie so, apocalypse. Yeah, the zombie apocalypse. Survivalists. Disturbing, really. But it's just, I don't know, it just shows that... uh Either the proletariat gets its shit together and becomes the universal class of humanity, or the bourgeoisie leaves us all to cannibalize each other, and, you know, it's just grim. So the, the piece ends. When the head fudge managers asked me to, the best way to maintain authority over their security forces after the event, I suggested that their best bet would be to treat those people really well right now. They should be, <laughs> they should be engaging with their security staffs as if they were members of their own family. And the more they can expand this ethos of inclusivity to the rest of their business practices, supply chain management, sustainability efforts, and wealth distribution, the less chance there will be of an event in the first place. All this technological wizardry would be applied 
could be applied toward less romantic but entirely more collective interests right now. They were amused by my optimism, but they didn't really buy it. <laughs> they, were, they were not interested in how to avoid a calamity. They were convinced that we are too far gone. For all their wealth and power, they don't believe they can affect the future. They are simply accepting, accepting the darkest of all scenarios and then bringing whatever money and technology they can and employ to insulate themselves, especially if they don't get a seat on the rocket to Mars. Yes, I mean, reason. I mean, it's kind of the best case I've heard for decadence theory, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I I think it's clear that we have crossed some kind of threshold. It's just it's hard to say when. It just makes it even more disgusting to hear, you know, people talk about, you know, this like uh, these people are job creators. You need to work as hard as they are. It's like why? So I can afford. So I need to work that hard so I can basically. Elon Musk can have his super hide away from the mess that I helped create. You know what I mean? There, yeah. There's this like dumb. Okay, I know this is gonna sound like a dumb diverge, but there's this like creepy pasta about like a Russian scientist creating like an af like a digital afterlife, and basically the whole story builds up to like what like them discovering this like massive like computer. Th- like just massive computers underground and like the one person that enters it is like completely traumatized by what he sees inside of there and what he describes is like an empty void just screaming for eternity and that's that's the future we're paying for now, uh, <laughs> so Elon yeah. Musk can scream it to digital eternity <laughs> that's it for this week if you'd like to get a hold of us you can email us at swapsidechats at gmail.com or you could also contact us on our facebook page if you'd like to support the show you can like our facebook page uh, share our posts or leave us a good review on itunes or if you want to just straight up send us some money you can do so via paypal at swampsidechats at gmail.com or you could subscribe to our Patreon page. Though we have a Patreon, um, there are no paywalled episodes, but there are a few bits of uh, bonus content if you'd like to uh, support the show or hear us record live or if you really, really want to make us read something. And uh, we appreciate it. Everyone who's left a review Everyone who's given us a like, everyone who sent us money, or subscribed to our Patreon, or even everyone who just kind of sat on their ass and just listened. That's cool, too. We're keeping the revolution alive in the form of podcasts. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. Tomorrow.